Good morning, my name is Russell Brown, and I serve as one of the elders here at FBC, and today we'll be reading from the scriptures in Luke 22, 14 through 23. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. You may be seated. Morning. My name is Greg. I'm one of the pastors here at FBC. Glad to have you here this morning in our message today. We're going to be in Luke chapter 22, verses 1 through 38. Let's ask the Lord for his help before we get started. God, we thank you for the kindness you have shown us in Jesus Christ, and we thank you, God, for the privilege it is to know you through your word, we pray as we take a few minutes this morning to think about what you have done and who you are and how you have worked diligently and perfectly to redeem sinners. Our prayer would be that you would, by your spirit, help us to understand what we need to know and understand how to know you by faith. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Boy, some of you guys are having a hard morning. Because we're doing communion different. I mean, you are just, some of you almost stormed out. I saw it. I said, forget it. And we don't, we don't do change very well, do we? We, we don't do change. I, and this, is, this has nothing to do with the message. It just made me think of something as, as we don't deal with change. A, a million years ago when I was uh, younger, um, I was a part of a new church. We planted a church up in the Portland area. And uh, I was in charge of the kids. I know, that's a terrible idea, but whatever. So we had, a, we had a room in this space we were releasing that we were using for a nursery. And so for the first four weeks, that was adequate, but we discovered that the room next door to it would have been a, was a better space for the little kids in the, in the nursery. And so on week number five of our church, the church is five weeks old, we selected the room right next door for the nursery, and as the parents were coming in, I said, oh, it's, it's this room now is where the nursery is. It's, it's, it's 10 feet from the other door. And one of them commented, but, but the other room is where we've always had the nursery. And uh, there it is. We're a church. We're a church, because we can't do change. We've been, it's been the nursery four weeks, and, it, and they were fine. They were able to make that adjustment. So I'm sorry if uh, communion was a, uh, doing it a little different was uh, tough for you. And, of course, when I say I'm sorry, I, I don't mean that at all. If you had the money and power to do anything you wanted, what would you do? If you had the money and the power and the influence and the cred to do whatever you wanted, 
what would, what would you do? You, if you had the money, maybe you would uh, go on a particular kind of vacation that today you can't go. Because if you have enough money, you can book a reservation nearly, nearly anywhere. So money opens a lot of doors and gives you a lot of opportunities. But a lot of us don't have uh, the amount of money that would uh, unlock the doors that we would like to walk through. But on the other hand, money doesn't open all the doors. So if you wanted, for example, to stay for an extended period of time in the presidential residence in the White House, really there's only, there's only one way to do that, and that's to, to be elected president. And it seems like not everybody gets to do that. And so there's some things that maybe money will, money will open doors, and other things you have to have a particular amount of influence and power to open doors. And so I wonder if you were to think about it, if you had all the right connections and all the right funds, and you could do whatever you wanted, what is it that you would choose to do? And one of the things that's important as we think about today is, is Palm Sunday, is, is we sort of commemorate the path for Jesus from here to the cross, is we have to recognize that Jesus chose that path. In the first verse of the Gospel of John, John chapter 1, this is what the Bible says, in the beginning was the Word. And of course, we must understand that John here is referring to Jesus as he refers to the Word. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, verse 3 of John 1, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So the gospel writers understand Jesus is God. He has always been God, and he always will be God. He was born in time as a man, but he has always been. And not only is he God, he is the creator of all things. So everything that is, he made. Everything that he made was made for him. And so what we understand about Jesus, then, if we think about it accurately, is Jesus has all of the money and influence that is possible. So when we think, if I had a certain amount of money and power, I would do this, Jesus is in that position. He can do whatever he wants to do because he has all of the resources, because he made everything, and he has all of the power because he is God. What we discover about Jesus, who has everything and has the power to do anything, he chose to serve humbly. That was his decision. And I want us to think about that because he did it on purpose, and I want us to think probably about that differently than we're used to. We might assume Jesus served humbly because he had no other options, but that's not the case. Jesus served humbly because he chose to. So the title of the message today is The Power of Humble Service. And the first thing we need to recognize is that Jesus, in his sacrifice to save sinners on the cross, displayed the power of humble service. Jesus displays his power in being in complete control of all of the events surrounding his death on the cross. He never was, at, for a single moment, out of control in the events leading up to and including the cross. So Jesus displayed his power by choosing to humbly serve others through his journey to the cross. Look at Luke chapter 22, verses 1 and 2. Now, the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover. Thanks, Luke, for the clarification. Why did he give us that clarification? 
Because Luke isn't really writing to Jews. As you can see on the title slide, outsiders become insiders. He's thinking about Gentiles. A Gentile reading Luke, a feast of unleavened bread. What the heck is that? Oh, thanks, Luke, for telling me. It's the Passover. I've heard of that. Verse 2, the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him, that is Jesus, to death. For they feared the people. So here in these first few verses, from here to verse 13, we're going to look at a number of people who are making preparations for the coming weekend. The first group of people that are making preparations are the chief priests and the scribes. These religious leaders, they were looking for and seeking an opportunity to put Jesus to death. And you might wonder, why didn't they just kill him? Why didn't they just round him up and kill him? They did this all the time. This is Monday for them. Find somebody, say that they're a blasphemer, and stone him to death. This is something that they did. Of course, they would have to get Rome's permission, but it wasn't hard to do. But we, we discover why they were looking for a particular kind of opportunity to kill Jesus. It says it at the end of verse 2. They what? Feared the people. Why did they fear the people? How did Jesus arrive in Jerusalem? You remember that. He rode on a donkey. Multitudes showed up and put palms on the ground as he rode into Jerusalem. And everybody was excited and happy about the Messiah. And he's arriving. And of course, they were hoping that he would deliver them from Rome, and he came to sacrifice himself. But nonetheless, they knew that if they were arrested the people, they may riot. They may, they may come after the religious leaders. And so the religious leaders had to sort of survey the influence they had in their political connections. Do they have the pull and the credentials to pull off murdering this so-called Messiah and keeping the people in their place? Because if the people freak out, the Romans will freak out. And if the Romans freak out, they're going to kill us all. And that's not an overstatement. That's just how it is. So they were looking for an opportunity. How could we kill this guy without the people freaking out? Because we're afraid of the people. They had fear. They had some resource. They had some power, some influence, but not a lot. And so they had to prepare. They had to think. They had to connive. They weren't the only one making preparations. Others were making preparations. Verse 3, then Satan entered Judas. So another uh, another person, so to speak, making preparations is Satan. Satan has plans here to try and intervene and prevent the work of God from being accomplished. And of course, Satan thinks he's going to derail the plan of God by killing the Son of God, Jesus. That's a terrible idea. But nonetheless, he thinks he's going to pull it off. So Satan now is making preparations, using one of Jesus' own disciples, Judas Iscariot, the betrayer, to try to pull off this plan to kill God himself. That's Satan's plan. He's making preparations. He's been making preparations for this for a very, very long time. How long has Jesus been, or Satan been making preparations to kill the Son of Man? Since the Exodus. Since he worked through Pharaoh to have the babies of Israel thrown into the Nile. Since Esther, and he worked through Haman to seek to try to destroy all of the Jews in uh, uh, whatever country that is. There we go. I knew somebody had read Esther, and I knew it would have been a lady. <laughs> Thank you, Diana. <laughs> Gary knew it too, but he was, I'm not saying I read Esther. <laughs> and then he, Satan continued working through Herod and the babies in Bethlehem. So Satan has been working for a very long time to try and cut off the line of the Messiah, but now we have a great opportunity. What do we have? The Messiah himself we can kill. So Satan has been preparing. He's not the only one. What about Judas? 
Judas had, for some reason, had become dissatisfied with Jesus. The Bible doesn't make it abundantly clear. It could be that Jesus wasn't being profitable enough. We know that Judas had an eye for shiny things. It could be he was disappointed that Jesus wasn't going to come into power and made it clear he was going to die. Whatever the case, Judas decides to make plans to be a part of those who would destroy Jesus, and so he goes to the chief priests, discovers the way to make a little bit of a profit, and he agrees for, to look for an opportunity to betray Jesus to the leaders. He doesn't have an opportunity. He has to make preparations for an opportunity because one doesn't exist yet. So all of these are making preparations, scrambling, as it were, to try and figure out a way to derail the mission of God through the Messiah. Jesus is not making preparations. Everybody else is making preparations. What's Jesus doing? Jesus is working his plan. And this plan has been around for a long, long time. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearance of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Jesus has a plan, and when did he come up with that plan? Before planet Earth, there was a plan put in place. We are going to redeem. And so now you've got all of these people, the religious leaders, Satan, Judas, scrambling to make preparations to try and interrupt this eternal plan of God. And what are the odds they are going to succeed? Zero. Good luck with that. Nonetheless, they are going to try and pull it off. Jesus is simply working the plan that he has in place and so Jesus, throughout the passion narrative, throughout the time of, of, of journeying through uh, Jerusalem and finding himself on the cross, he is in total and complete control. Everything is happening precisely as he has intended for it to happen from eternity past. This is the power of humble service. He is not scrambling like the others around him. He is using his power and might to work in a particular way which is humble service to the people around him. Look what he did. This is verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we, we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? Now stop there for a minute. Peter and John say, Where will you have us prepare the meal? Who's listening? Judas, where are we going to eat? Why does he want to know this information? He's got 30 pieces of silver that tell him he wants to find a quiet place where nobody's looking, that Jesus can be arrested. So he's listening in. And Jesus tells him exactly where to prepare the meal. Behold, go into the city, follow a guy with a jar, look for a donkey, tall tree, tractor, bush, turn left. And Judas goes, holy cow, okay, that's not going to work out. Judas, has nowhere, not, Judas doesn't find out where they're eating till it's time to go eat. So Jesus sends them into the city. Find this man and, and enter his house and tell the master of that house, the teacher says to you, where's the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? 
He'll show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. Verse 13, they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. So Jesus had made arrangements, either supernaturally and miraculously, or he filled out a website and had it reserved. I don't know. Either way, it doesn't really matter. The point is this. Jesus is working the plan he already has lined out. It, everything's happening precisely as he intends it to happen. He is not flustered. He is not scrambling. He's not making adjustments to his opposers. Everybody else is trying to make adjustments to what he is doing, and they will all, all of them, fail to derail his plan. His plan, because of his power and his might, operates exactly as it intends to, and he intends to display in his plan the means to accomplishing his goal is humble service. Humble service is on purpose because that's the plan. Russell read for us the passage when they took supper together. The hour came and he reclined at the table with his disciples and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And you wonder, well, how long has he been desiring to eat this Passover with his disciples? So maybe since the beginning of his ministry, three years early, or I don't know. Maybe since he went into the temple as a 12-year-old and said, I, want to, I must be in my father's house, I don't know. Maybe since Exodus, when Passover occurred, as the Israelites were leaving Egypt, maybe God himself, as he worked out the Passover and the Israel leaving Egypt, maybe he was thinking of this meal with the disciples in the future. Maybe he'd been looking forward to it that long. That's 1,500 years of anticipation. I've looked forward to some meals, but not for 1,500 years. Maybe those before the creation of the world. Maybe before the creation of the world, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, as this uh, plan of God to redeem humankind that is yet to be created, he is already anticipating these moments with these disciples. An opportunity for him to make known to them the love of God through this Passover. And of course, Passover is that celebration of when Israel was delivered out of Egypt because each family would slaughter a Passover lamb in their home and they would have to take the blood of that lamb and, and coat it on the door frames as a sign to God that they trust him to redeem them, to save him, their family, from the, uh, the, the destroyer. Any who did not have their doorway painted with the blood of the lamb, the, the, anyone in that home who was the oldest would die. And there wasn't a home in Egypt that didn't have someone who was dead. Now, this lamb was important. When you had a Passover lamb, and uh, you would get the lamb, and you would actually get the lamb and bring it into your home. Two weeks prior to Passover, you would bring it in. Your, so you didn't go out into your field the day, of the, the day of Passover and get the lamb. You brought it into your home for for 14 days, you would bring this lamb in. He's running around, and you sit down at night to watch a little Netflix. He jumps up on your lap, petting him, saying, we're going to kill you in a couple of weeks, <laughs> trying to get him chill. Why would, why, would you, why would they do that? And the reason is so that when the lamb was slaughtered, there was that connection. You could go out and pick any old lamb. If I was going to pick a lamb, I'd pick one that met the requirements, but I'd also pick the one that every time I went in the field, it butted me. I would pick that one because it's a nuisance. The one in your home, though, two weeks later, there's a little bit of a, I don't want to kill this lamb now. 
I woke up in the middle of the night, and it was laying next to me, and it was not. It provided some warmth. And now, and now this, but, but nonetheless, the Passover lamb, even if it's been in your home for 14 days, and maybe there's some sort of connection, almost like it's a, a pet, nonetheless, the lamb is still not volunteering for the job. At the end of the day, it's still forced into it. It doesn't have an option. It's forced into it. And what, what the people of Israel were supposed to recognize, it's through the shedding of blood that you are delivered from judgment. And this was to be commemorated annually, every single year. And now Jesus is coming, and he is the Passover lamb. And what he wants to do is a couple of things to communicate. Number one, he is not forced into it. What, what did we talk about all morning? Is he in control? He is in total control. He is voluntarily giving up his life to act as the Passover lamb. And how many times does Jesus have to die? Does he have to come every year? No, he just comes once. Because his sacrifice on the cross is sufficient to address the penalty of our sin. So Jesus comes in, and now he is eating the Passover meal with the disciples, and he wants to reframe that Passover meal from commemorating deliverance from Egypt. And now he's reframing and saying, you weren't just saved from slavery to a country. In me, you are saved from slavery to death and sin. He's reframing the commemoration. He still wants us to remember. But now we are remembering the finished work of Jesus Christ, the voluntary Passover lamb. Jesus eats the meal with us, with his disciples, and tells them to remember the cross, to anticipate the future reunion. Acts chapter 20 Verse 28, the Apostle Paul is talking to some leaders of the church in Ephesus. They aren't in Ephesus, they're on a beach. They weren't on vacation, he was traveling. This is how he discusses the reality of the church in terms of Christ. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock, referring to the church. Pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you, excuse me, overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. See, God sees the body of Christ as having been purchased by the blood of Christ, just as the people of Israel saw themselves as being redeemed out of Egypt by the blood of the Lamb. And so Jesus calls us in to commemorate, saying, he has purchased me with his blood, redeeming me from my sin and my death. And so now my relationship is one of, of ownership. I am a slave to Christ because he has purchased me with his blood, redeeming me out of slavery to sin and death, and now giving me a new master, life and righteousness to God. And Jesus, at that Passover with his disciples, reframes this commemorative event to remember him. Jesus says, take the, take the uh, cup, divide it among yourselves. I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And so Jesus tells us he's anticipating our reunion as much as we're anticipating reunion with him. He took the bread and he broke it and it said, this is my body 
which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus reminds us that that bread is broken and it, it sustains us because he is our source of life, just as manna was the source of life for Israel in the wilderness. Jesus is our source of life and his body was broken because he, he bore our punishment so we don't have to. And he took the cup. This cup is poured out for you. It's the covenant in my blood. So Jesus said, because of his shed blood, God makes a promise to us. If you're in Christ, you have been made righteous by the shed blood of Christ. That's a covenant. What does it, what does it mean that it is a covenant? It means that relationship is not maintained by you. It is maintained by the one who made the promise. Who made the promise? God did. On the cross, shedding his blood. He makes a, a promise to those who will receive it by faith, I make you righteous by the shed blood of Christ. And so therefore, you are made righteous by faith, and you stay righteous because Jesus keeps his promises. This is an aside. This isn't in my notes. There's no charge for this. I think it's funny as Christians. I think we're really we're like varsity team at feeling bad about sin. Do you, do you, is that a different group? Not this group? Okay. We're really, really, now, I, I think we should feel some conviction. When we don't th- do things God's ways, we should say, you know what, that is not what God wants. I mean, there should be a sense of that. But I think it's really interesting how, as Christians, we become really, really good at trying to, trying to do penance, for lack of a better term. If I feel bad about being bad long enough, God will see me as good again. I have to feel bad about it, and I need to... To make up for my sin. God, I, since I did that, I promise to not do that for, forever. I know none of you have ever done that. I promise to never again. Ever done that one? No, okay. Don't look around. And what we want to do is we want to pay a little bit of the penalty for our sin, don't we? Because it feels good to kind of own a bit of it. And Jesus says, you're not righteous because you are righteous. You're lame at being righteous. You are righteous because Jesus keeps his promises. That's it. Jesus keeps the promise of his shed blood. That's why we wake up in the morning and say his, new, his mercy is new every morning because he's still keeping his promise. He is the one who has made us righteous. He is the one who keeps us righteous. Jesus' purpose in his redemption of humankind is to serve. He wants to, to display his power and might by providing the means of salvation through his humble service. He provides forgiveness for people, and he does it through his death and his resurrection. So when we see Jesus crucified, we are not seeing him powerless, we are seeing him display his power. When we see Jesus suffering the torment of his captors, we don't see someone who has run out of options, we see someone doing precisely what he intends to do. And in the scenes from Pilate to the cross, to the burial, there is only one person in all of these scenes that is actually in control of what's happening, and it's Jesus. And his power is on display through his humble service. Look at Judas down in verse 21. The Son of Man goes as it has been determined. That's a bit of a mic drop. Nobody steps in on my plans. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And the disciples begin to question one another about which of them it could be who was going to do this. 
this is an aside. Again, it's a freebie. And you're like, you know, the free stuff is kind of overpriced. How did the disciples not know? Are they really arguing at this point? I think it's Peter. And what if they're taking, trying to vote each other off the island? I think it's the zealot. We always know that zealot is, is always political. I, I think it's hilarious that none of them has picked up on Judas. But apparently he was really good at covering his tracks. A couple of things about Judas' plan in reference to Jesus that I want you to pay attention to. First thing about Judas' plan, Jesus knows about his plan. Here's the nice way of saying it. You can't sneak up on Jesus. Judas has not successfully kept his plan from Jesus. Jesus didn't wake up one night and go, oh my lands, I think Judas is going to betray me. Jesus is unsurprised. Judas' plan is completely known. Judas' plan is also completely useless. It does not accomplish what Judas wants it to accomplish. And in fact, it has always been Jesus' plan for Judas to do exactly what he's doing. In fact, we would say it this way. Jesus' plan was to use Judas to accomplish his plan. There's a psalm that talks about David being betrayed by his closest friend, by the one who he shared a meal with. In fact, it says, by the one who we dipped our hands together into the dish. And we know this psalm is fulfilled in Jesus as Jesus was betrayed by the one who dipped his hand into the dish. So here's Jesus all along. He's fulfilling prophecy with Judas. He's in total control. Judas' plan is known. Judas' plan is useless. Judas' plan is powerless. Think about it this way for Judas. If Judas' plan goes exactly as it's supposed to, it is categorically successful, home run. What is the end result of Judas' plan if it goes exactly as it needs to go? What's the end result? Jesus dies. What's the problem with that? Jesus doesn't stay dead. So Judas' plan, even if it is completely successful, is completely powerless because Jesus won't stay dead. What was he thinking? He didn't believe in Jesus. Judas, even as he was being used by the devil, have no power in comparison to what Jesus is doing. When you read through the gospel narratives and you think about the, the work that God was doing uh, to go from uh, the Mount of Olives to the cross, you might mistakenly think Jesus was simply being swept along by the events of the day. And that's completely wrong in terms of how the Bible frames it. The events of the day are being swept along by the power of Jesus. And he is in control the entire time. The power of humble service is displayed in Christ's sacrifice. We see what Jesus is like. He's powerful in humble service. And the second part of this passage, verses 24 through 38, I want to finish with this. The power of humble service is the rallying cry of Christ's kingdom. Jesus wants us to be the same, the same way. He wants us to display the power of God through humble service. At one time in my life, I don't now, nowadays, and not because I'm against it, but I just don't. At one time, I owned a red polo. I don't know if you have a, a red polo, but I had a red polo. I kind of liked it. It got kind of faded. I tend to keep my clothes too long. And uh, I had a red polo, and I made a mistake one day. And you know, what's the biggest mistake if you're wearing a red polo? Go shopping at Target. And I, I tell you what, I never did that again. 
I finally got the point. I was telling people where stuff was. I didn't know where it was. You know, because they were all just nonsense. How are you people shopping and you don't know where stuff is? I mean, they don't move stuff around a lot. But you wear a red polo, people are going to ask you where stuff is. So I started telling them. And then, you know, they complained to my manager. Get me fired. That'd be great. <laughs> I just want to buy my soap or whatever it was I was buying. So why is that? When you go into Target and you're looking for something, you know what to look for. Here's what I look for. If I, if I need help, I look for somebody wearing a, a red shirt. So the question I want you to think about this. As a believer, what's your red polo? What is it that sets a person apart as Christ follower? What, what is it when somebody says, oh, there's a, there's a Jesus-y person? And what is it that you think is a, a critical element of what it means to be a Christ follower that we might say identifies a person as someone who follows Jesus? Here's a couple of things that might pop into your mind. Maybe, maybe it's a strong position on significant moral issues. So maybe there are some significant cultural moral issues you have a strong opinion on, and you want to make sure people know what those opinions are because that's going to mark you as someone who follows Christ. Now, you don't actually follow those moral opinions, as we know, but you have those opinions. Christians ought not to, and people ought not to. And so I have some strong moral opinions. Maybe it's kindness. Maybe Christians ought to be kind. And and now it's a competition with the non-believers in your office. I have to be kinder than the non-believers. Otherwise, they're going to think non-believers can be kind too. So uh, what is it for you? Maybe it's church attendance. Maybe it's when you pray. You pray in the King James. You never say thee and thou except when you're praying, when you're saying grace. So what is it marks you as a believer? And what Jesus wants us to understand as he's going to discuss an issue with his disciples is the, the red polo of a Christian is humble service. That's the marker. That's the what ought to identify Christians as follower of Christ. Humble service was the way in which Jesus saved us, and he wants that same humble service to be the mark of the people he saved. He saved us through humble service, not because he didn't have other options, but because he wanted the people redeemed through his salvation to be marked and characterized by humble service itself. Verses 24 through 30. Let me read them. A dispute also arose among them, that is, his disciples, as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. Not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. He uses himself as the example. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So a dispute breaks out among the disciples, and they want to know who is the awesomest, which, of course, completely misses the point of what Jesus is trying to communicate. Jesus wants them to pursue greatness 
But he wants them to pursue greatness the same way he's pursuing greatness. How is he pursuing greatness? Humble service. So he says, no, I do want you to pursue greatness. But you have to understand that the the economy of my kingdom is greatness through humble service. Glory in the kingdom of Christ is obtained through humble service the way our king served. Look at verse 31 very briefly. Simon, Simon, he's Jesus talking to Peter. Behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. When you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. This is crazy. Now, you may not think that verse is crazy. I think this verse is crazy. Now, I'm not questioning the verse. Don't get me wrong. Let me explain why I think this is crazy. Here it is. Jesus comes to Peter and says, Satan is asked to sift you. Now, right there, if I were Peter, because something Peter and I have in common is we don't know when to shut up. I've got an idea, Jesus. How about tell him no? I'm just throwing, just spitballing some ideas. I mean, there's no bad ideas, right? Um, how about you tell Satan who is asked to sift me, how about you tell him no? But what does Jesus do? I prayed for you. I hope it goes well. So here's Peter arguing with the disciples about who's the greatest. Who is Peter arguing is the greatest? Petey, of course. Peter is going to, they're all arguing for their greatness. And, and Jesus takes Peter and he says, let me explain something to you, Peter. There are things going on way beyond your understanding, way beyond your power, way beyond you. You think you're, you're powerful? You're, you're Peter, a fisherman. There is an enemy who is far beyond you in power, and he has asked to sift you. We don't know why Jesus gave Satan permission to sift him, other than to know that that brought Christ the most glory, the same way uh, the enemy uh, working diligently to ruin Job's life brought God glory through redemption. And so immediately Peter should have been humbled. Wait a second, there's things going on here. At the end of the day, we read about it in John 21, Peter and Jesus are reconciled, meaning Peter was reconciled to Jesus. How is it that Peter made it through that ordeal and still had a desire to know Jesus? How is it? Is it because Peter was spiritually sensitive? Was it because Peter just held on to a little bit of hope and he just clenched his teeth a little bit? What is it that took Peter from the the emotional, spiritual destruction of denying Christ while Christ was being tortured to being able to respond favorably once again to Jesus? What is it that put Peter in that position? We discover it here. What was it? Jesus prayed for him. That's it. If Jesus doesn't pray for Peter, Peter's lost. And he's going to argue about being the greatest. And we're going to argue that somehow we bring something to the table for Jesus. I mean, isn't this ridiculous? We're operating in a realm, the spiritual realm, that we are, we're the little teeny fish in the sea. And the only reason, the only reason we can be called righteous is Christ himself has worked himself into us by the power of his Holy Spirit. Jesus here is wanting to communicate to his disciples. Humble service is the means to greatness. And secondly, if you want to be great, you're, you're way out of line. You're, you're playing in a, in, a, in, a, in a game that you don't understand. 
the means of Jesus' salvation is humble service, and what he wants for his followers is to participate with him through humble service. Look at verses 35 to the end. Jesus said to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, Nothing. And he said, Now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. He was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, Look, Lord, we have two swords. And he said to him, let me rephrase this, knock it off. So Jesus here, is, he's been leading the way. And now what he's doing is saying, listen, I'm, I've been demonstrating for you what humble service looks like. I, I've demonstrated for you that the redemption of humankind comes through personal sacrifice of the Messiah. And that's where power and glory is. Power and glory in the kingdom of God is through humble service and personal sacrifice. And the Messiah is going to go to the cross and that he's going to leave the tomb. And then we read in the beginning of Acts, he's going to ascend to heaven. And now he's going to say, it's time for you to live that same way. Up to this point, I've been carrying you along. Now it's time for you to think, prepare, plan. What does it mean for me to be ready to serve humbly those who are around me? Jesus has been leading the way. Now it's time for the disciples to take the, the bull by the horn, so to speak, and say, what does it look like for me to follow Jesus in humble service? Not for personal glory. That's why they complete, completely missed the point of having a sword. They still don't get it. But the point is for them to start thinking about what humble service looks like. And thankfully, we know what that looks like for the disciples. What is it? It's the entire book of Acts. The entire book of Acts is the disciples now putting into motion what they learned from Christ, preaching the gospel, caring for the poor, caring for the widows. Eventually, by the power of the Spirit, they're going to get it. But the night of Christ's death, they don't get it. And they're all going to abandon him. The power of humble service is the rallying cry of Christ's kingdom. Jesus could have brought redemption any way he wanted. He didn't have to come humbly, right? I mean, if he wanted to, now he didn't. If he wanted to, he could have been crucified in glory. He, he didn't have to go through all that. He could have done it any manner of ways. Jesus, on purpose, chose the way in which he decided to, to bring about redemption because that's who he is. He is a king who wants to reach the humble, and he wants to reach the lowly. And so he comes humbly that all those who would see him would respond to his humble service. Now he asks us as those who are following him, do we want to be glorified or do we want to serve humbly the people around us? The power of humble service is displayed. displayed. I'm sure that's some language. Displayed in Christ's sacrifice and the power of humble service is the rallying cry of Christ's kingdom. That's what we ought to be known for. A couple of reasons it's, it's difficult to serve humbly. Number one, it's hard to serve humbly because generally you will be unappreciated. In fact, we might argue if you were appreciated, you might have missed the mark. Humble service is difficult because it's, it's hard to be unappreciated. Isn't it annoying when you're serving people and they refuse to acknowledge your awesomeness? 
Now, I know it sounds silly. We would never say it, but sometimes it is. We just want people to recognize how hard we're working. And, and you know what? If, if we ought to recognize when people are helping us. It, we should be thankful and, and grateful when people are serving us. But one of the reasons it's hard to serve humbly is because it means we will be unappreciated and undervalued. I might say it the other way. How do you know when you're really hitting the ball hard in humble service? Because you're unappreciated and people take you for granted. And so if you're struggling with that, you say, man, the people at church don't know how hard I work. The people in my home don't know how hard I work. People in my community don't understand everything I do for them. Hey, you're in the sweet spot. That's the place to be. If you're struggling with not being appreciated and recognized, and that's, a, that's normal for people to want to be appreciated and recognized, that, that means you're, you're in the zone, to, so to speak, on what it means for humble service. Another reason it's hard to serve humbly is because your efforts might be wasted. Humble service is difficult because your efforts might be ineffective in your view. Sometimes God calls us to faithful service in ways that just bring him glory because of our obedience, and the outcome is just simply our obedience. Sometimes it's hard to serve humbly because others feel entitled to what we're doing. Sometimes it's hard to serve humbly because other people are doing similar things, but they do it so much better, and so we just want to give up. Well, I don't need to do it because so-and-so is better at it. And humble service doesn't say, can I be the best at something? Humble service says, what does serving God look like in my home and in my community, in my church? Sometimes we don't want to serve humbly because we will fear we will fail. I know there's an important thing that needs to be done at church or in the community or in my home, but I don't want to do it because I may screw it up. And so we're afraid. All of these things, unappreciated, Wasted efforts, ineffective efforts, the, in, the sense of entitlement from people around. These are all things that Jesus could have considered. And Jesus didn't let him stop. These things stop him. We shouldn't let him, these things stop us either. Another thing just to think about. As a believer, this is getting back to our red polo. Nobody will understand what that means if they weren't here today. What does it mean for you to be a Christ follower? One way to, to kind of get at this is ask yourself this question. Since I'm a Christian, I would never. And you have to say that a particular way. Why? I would never. You hear somebody did something or went somewhere, I would never go to Las Vegas for vacation. I would never. I don't know what it is. I would never go to that. You went to that movie? That one. Oh, wow. I would, I would never. You have to kind of shake it so your jowls <laughs> flop a little. It's kind of what you got to do. Well, that's your red polo. There it is. My kids would never act that way. I would never send my kids to public school. No, we'd better shut down. I would, I would never. So what that thing is, is your identity. I am a Christian, so I therefore put on this is my thing. And what Jesus is telling us through his journey to the cross is that thing is humble service. That's it. If you want to put on something that says, if I am going to be like Jesus, it is anonymous, sacrificial, 
unappreciated, disregarded service to others because that's what Jesus did. That's what Jesus is saying here. And we're arguing about who's the greatest. As believers, it should be our heart's desire by the movement of the Holy Spirit to be known as people who serve others humbly, not to be known for stuff we don't do. Okay, last thing on this, and then we'll respond by taking communion together. How do, how do we look for Jesus-like humble service? Here's another way I want you to think about what it means to serve others. A lot of us nowadays, because on the, on the interwebs, there's lots of opportunity for you to take tests to figure out what you're like. Like personality, what's, that, what's the famous one everybody's doing? Is it the Enneagram? Have you heard of this? You guys don't do the interwebs? Okay. You can take tests to find out if you're outgoing and are an introvert or an introverted extrovert or an extroverted introvert or I don't know what all the things are. I'm a golden retriever seal. I don't know. And so what we do is we think about our service to Christ. So we say, well, here's the kind of person I am. I'm this kind of person with these kinds of interests, with these kinds of temperaments, so this is the way I ought to serve. Because I have these kinds of skills and talents and these kinds of temperaments and these kinds of hobbies and these kinds of connections, so therefore I'm going to serve in this way. So what have we done? My humble service needs to fit who? Me. I am grateful Jesus didn't do that. Because Jesus would have described himself as creator of the world, sustainer of the world, eternal, glorified, holy, righteous. So if he is going to serve in that capacity, what should he do? He shouldn't be serving us because we're none of those things. So what Jesus did is he didn't look for opportunity to serve that fit him. He looked for opportunities to serve that fit the served. So humble service intentionally disregards what I think I need and says, what do they need? What, what do the people around me need? Well, that's not, really my, um, that's not really my area of expertise and interest. I don't know how to say this nicely, so I won't. No one cares. Serve. Humbly serve, disregarding my own interests. Who is the greatest in the kingdom? The first one to the bottom wins. And that's what humble service is. I serve to fit what others need, not how I think I should get to serve. The power of humble service is displayed in Christ's sacrifice and is the rallying cry of Christ's kingdom.